Jesus counseled seven different churches in the book of Revelation who are going through very, very similar situations we're going through. And we're going to receive that counsel today. We're going to see what Jesus says, how we ought to walk and how we ought to live as we go through what we go through in this world today. I don't know about you, but <clears throat> sometimes you feel lonely and you go like, why am I lonely? Why am I feeling lonely? And I, re I learned this in college, by the way. Most people think that they're lonely because they don't have enough people around them. But how many of you have ever wondered as you walked through the mall or if you walked out, while you walked downtown or when you turn on the TV, you thought, man, I feel so lonely. There is nobody in this world that sees things the way I see things. <laughs> Loneliness is not the lack of people. Loneliness is not having people who see what you see, who believe what you believe. Loneliness is not the lack of people. It's a lack of direction. There are many things that make up loneliness, but I believe that today, as the church of Jesus Christ, we sometimes wonder, is there anybody that believes as we do? And I want to outline for you how those belief systems differ. Are you ready? The reason why you sometimes feel lonely when you look at the world and you wonder, am I the only one? The reason this is true for you is because there are two truths or two ways of discovering truth. The first way of discovering truth is what we call subject, uh, uh, subjective truth, right? That is when a person comes to a conclusion as to what is true for them based on what they have experienced in this life. Their truth is subjective because it is subject to their experience. Other people, they experience truth and they conclude to a truth because their truth is subject to their emotions. This is how I feel about something, therefore that is true for me. People conclude or they come to a conclusion as to what their truth is based on their tradition, their experience, their emotions, but also their perspectives. So many people attempt to find truth that way, but you struggle to find people who believe like you because your truth is not authored by your experience, by your feelings, by your perspectives, by your traditions, or by the majority of people. Your truth comes from an objective place, not a subjective place. Objective truth means I don't I bring a clean piece of paper, a blank piece of paper, and I put it down and I say, okay, God, you tell me what life is all about. I'm not going to add a couple of scriptures to what I already believe. I'm going to ask you what your word says, and then based on what your word says, that is truth to me. It comes to me from you. It doesn't come from me to the rest of the world. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? Most people project the truth that comes from them because people today believe in subjective truth. But you and I, folks, we believe in objective truth, a truth that comes to us from God's Word. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to outline to you as to why sometimes people find themselves to be lonely in this world. But Jesus had a lot to say about that. You see, Christianity has always been a picture of a church living in a pagan world. 
History shows the church of Christ living in a hostile environment throughout. If you think about it this way, throughout time, let's start with the prophets of old. They were all slaughtered. They were all persecuted. Let's move after the prophets, Malachi being the last one. Here comes Jesus, crucified. After Jesus, we have his disciples, the apostles. All of them martyred with the exception of John, who was imprisoned. After the apostles, we have the early church fathers. Most of them martyred. Every one of them persecuted. After the early church fathers, we go through the dark ages, horrible time for believers. All the way through to the end of the dark ages, the beginning of the enlightenment, here we get to the reformers, Martin Luther, the one that we know best. Most of them in that time martyred, burnt at the stake because of what the Catholic Church at the time called heresy. Even to this day, we see Christians persecuted, and the persecution is growing as we speak. I mean, there's not a, hist- there's not a time in history where we don't see the church or the God-fearing group of people on the earth not being a picture of an island in an ocean of evil. A light in a very dark world. It's always been like that. So let's consider the very first martyr of the New Testament, Stephen. Now think about this. Here we have Jesus. Everybody believed that he was going to be their Messiah. He was going to be the one that's going to give them political and social justice. He comes. None of it happens, actually. He dies. Uh, you know, that's like the worst kind of movie you can ever watch, you know. Dumbo drops. Dumbo's dead. End of story. You know. You know that Dumbo movie? You know, what a, what a horrible thing if you watch a movie and it just has a really bad ending. What it almost seems like this to the apostles. Here they have this great hope in Jesus who is going to bring complete reform. And then he goes and he gets crucified. He dies. But... He rises on the third day. Jesus shows himself to many people. And one time, Jesus showed himself to more than 500 people. So these accounts of Jesus' resurrection were verified by eyewitnesses. When you go to a court, a court will call in eyewitnesses, right? What does the witness do? The witness gives validity and credibility to certain facts as to how that event unfolded. And so here we have all these different eyewitnesses giving credibility as witnesses to the actual Jesus written about who rose from the dead. Here's Stephen. I mean, after the fact, he's like a, he, he is preaching, he, and he's on fire. Listen to how he preaches to these Jews who killed Jesus. He said, you stiff-necked people. This is in Acts 7, verse 51. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Your heart is darkened. Your heart is dead in your sins. Your ears cannot hear the truth. They haven't been circumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You did it. And this guy, this guy was gutsy. 
You did it. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You killed Jesus, verse 54. When the members of the, of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at Jesus, uh, at, at Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open up and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Oh, this infuriated them. Verse 57, and this, at this they covered their ears and held, yelled at the top of their voices. They were like this, screaming at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses, those standing on the side watching this, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This very Saul, who consented to the stoning of Stephen, was the very Saul who became Paul and then started all the churches. Imagine that. The mercy and the grace of God. While Saul was persecuting the church, dragging them into court and into prisons, while he hated, he wasn't searching for Christ. He was attempting to snuff out every evidence that there was for Christ. He wasn't looking. He was not a seeker. Hear me. God says, Saul, you violent man filled with the zeal, <laughs> I choose you. Slaps him off his horse, blinds him, speaks to him. Says, it's hard for you, isn't it? Kicking up against the goads. You're mine. I choose you and I appoint you for this time. Paul goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I was supposed to choose you. God says, no, 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 I choose you. This man right here. And while they were stoning, Stephen prayed. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I can only imagine that picture. You know, these people are getting so angry over what it is they're hearing. They just cop their ears. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. And then they run out there and become violent because they hate what they're hearing. People hate hearing the truth of the Word of God. Some of God's standards, promises, and commands have become such an offense to society today. People hate hearing it. They hate hearing it so much. They, they actually want to make it a crime for you to freely not just hear the Word of God, but speak the Word of God. So I don't know exactly where we are in American history or in the history of the world or the church history. I don't know when it will become a crime to proclaim truth of the Scriptures. But I do know this, that there is, growing, there is a growing hostility towards the very truth of God to this day. I follow seminaries, and I like to know which are the most popular, the most thorough seminaries, and which one produced the preachers who produce or come out there echoing the purest gospel. It's just something I like to do. But uh, interesting thing, just so you know, seminaries are constantly having to be dumbed down. Seminaries are where people go to pre prepare to, or, you know, they get the degree to be ministers. We have children in the room, so I want to be clear. But the seminaries are constantly having to dumb down their doctrine. <coughs> they have to constantly allow the world to encroach upon the very purity of the entire full gospel. 
because it's becoming more and more difficult to believe what the Bible actually says on hot topics of the day. And so I see now that seminaries will no longer have the choice to teach scholars the entire Bible uh, in order to remain accredited universities and colleges. And so now what people are doing is, this is because of, uh, you know, due to discrimination laws, but now what people are doing is they are going to have to start joining colleges hosted by local churches that are not accredited in order to, to study the actual objective truth of God and not society's subjective truth on what it means to love. However, whatever we will face in the next 10 years, because this is moving quickly, whatever we, you, me, and our children will be facing in the next 10 years, I want us to look at what the Lord Jesus was asking of us when we face times like these. Jesus was very clear what we ought to do when we face these things and when we arrive at this place. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we have seven letters written to seven different churches. These seven letters are embedded within the book called the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not John's revelation. This is Jesus Christ's revelation to you and I. You and I reading that book blesses us, the Bible says. It's a blessing just to read it. Even if you don't understand it, just read it. But these seven letters are written to the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are all cities in Asia Minor, which is today's modern-day Turkey. So you can go to Turkey, and you can actually go and see some of the artifacts of these churches that are still around. So in chapter 1, verse 9, we see that the apostle John is in prison in Patmos for preaching the gospel. And here is where John received this from God, this book called The Revelation of Christ. And after receiving this vision of Revelation, John copies it six more times. So he has seven copies of this book of Revelation. And um, with this letter to each of the churches embedded in this book, of course. And if you, if you think about it, geographically, these are the churches who are um, in a line in Asia Minor. They are geographically situated in such a way where it's the postal route, you know, so these churches are lined up. <clears throat> these churches are all experiencing great tribulation. These churches are experiencing persecution. Watch this. These churches are experiencing worldliness infiltrating into the church. They are experiencing a lot of false teachers joining the church because you remember when, when Satan attempts to destroy the church, he doesn't attack it. He joins it, right? These churches are experiencing a lot of compromise, number four. Number five, they're experiencing coldness. Number six, they're experiencing indifference to the gospel. So we see all those things happening in the church today. I'll give you one example. The infiltration of worldliness in the church. We're dressing up the church to look more like the world so that the world can love the church more. The church is the bride of Christ. She's not supposed to be attractive to the world, but she's trying to make herself as attractive as she can be to the world. So we dress her up. We make her sound like the world. We make her look like the world. And we start allowing the world to feel comfortable inside of the church. 
And many people believe that this is the way to reach them. No, that's not the way to reach them. That's the way to inoculate them against the gospel, where now they think they're in, but really they're not. When a person is, when a church has to be altered in order to make a person so comfortable that they think that they're part of the church when in fact they don't believe anything that Jesus really needs them to believe, that's just not the church, <laughs> right? So now they're inoculated against the gospel. You go like, are you going to heaven when you die? Of course I am. Why? Because of Jesus. Do you believe what Jesus said? No, I don't believe what he said, but he did save me. He's my savior today. So now they're inoculated. They don't want to hear the gospel because they don't think. They're still lost. They think they're now saved. And I'm going to show this to you in what Jesus was speaking to these churches. So the world was flooding into the church. I mean, today we see this also. Where the church is hooking their little wagon, their little cart onto worldly movements. Worldly perspectives. Worldly cultures. The church is just following along. Well, the culture says that this is good, so therefore we are participating. That is right, so we are participating. That is just, so we are participating. That is necessary, so we are participating. And I don't know if that's so for you, but for me, it's very obvious how the church is just follows suit. church is absolutely being led by the world in so many ways. So Jesus speaks to these churches because this is what they've experienced. Two out of these seven churches are faithful and needed no rebuke. Those were the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. But the Lord addresses each of these churches confronting the danger that is creeping into the churches out of the pagan world, being embraced by pastors, by ministers, by churchgoers. So as we look at Jesus' warning and encouragement to these churches, we can find our cue as to what Jesus is speaking to us about today. You see, these letters were written to seven very specific churches. But it was Jesus speaking to those churches about specific scenarios which are still valid when we face those very same specific scenarios. Jesus' word does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we look at Jesus' encouragement to those churches, that's Jesus' encouragement to this church since we are now in the same boat. Let's start with the first church, the church at Ephesus. Can you think about what it must have been like? You lived in Ephesus. There was one church for you to attend. Are you a churchgoer? Yeah. Well, then it's obviously you go to the church at Ephesus. There was no church shopping. <laughs> well, I like that music more. I like, you know, they keep it cooler in their building than in our building. Oh, their children's ministry is fantastic. Which simply means I don't have to do it when I get home. The church will teach my kids. Oh, you know what? That guy's funny. He really, he really just grabs me, man. I just love it. And so it becomes about everything but the purity of the gospel. Right? But they didn't have these options. So there were some issues we have today that they don't have. But let's look at the issues that we do have in common. 
The first church is the church at Ephesus. In Revelation 2, verse 1 through 5, he says this. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Okay, who's the angel of the church? The pastor. I do want to say this about pastoring. That when you, know, when you hear the word pastor, it's not actually talking about a position. It's talking about a function. The position is called elder, right? Elder is the position, but pastoring is the action. Pastoring is caring for the sheep. It is shepherding. A pastor is one with a stick. <laughs> you know, pastor is one who actively goes out there and keeps, keeps sheep from going over that edge and keeps getting them to come over here where there is something to eat, where they are going to survive. A pastor is one who, uh, who, who, who takes care of what attacks the sheep. He's in actual fact a fighter. He, he, is, he doesn't hand out candy. He takes them to healthy foods, right? So a pastor, oftentimes when you find a good pastor, you'll find somebody who uh, for his whole life will probably be addressing the issues that's attempting to harm the sheep and the sheep doesn't know it. The sheep do not know it. They don't care to know it. Do you know that sheep don't have fangs to attack or to, or to protect themselves? They don't have claws to protect themselves. They don't, they don't actually have anything. They don't have speed. They really have nothing. They can't run away. They don't hide. They just, they just stand there. As a matter of fact, sheep have to be protected from themselves even. Like if you, don't, if you don't cut the wool, I mean that sheep can fall over and just die because he cannot get up by himself. And so this is no reflection on you necessarily, only me too, in the sense that we are all sheep and we're all following our shepherd Jesus Christ. And some have the function of under-shepherds. We have a pastoral care. They're under-shepherds. People who pastor, who shepherd people. And it's not always the nice thing to do, but it's a thing that people love to do because of the love that they have for the Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. He says, well, then care for the sheep. Your caring for the sheep is your response to your love that you have for me. It's from the love that you have for me. So here we see Jesus speaking to the angel of the church at Ephesus. I do actually want to say this. The reason I went down that pathway is because oftentimes the shepherd would look at the sheep going down this path and he goes like, wait, 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 that path is the one that leads to that, that escarpment, that cliff. That path is the one. By the way, do you know that the, that the wolves, they, they know the pathways of the sheep where they find that green pastures and they know that pasture ends over here, so they will wait at the end of the pasture for the sheep to get there. And the shepherd goes, I know where this pathway leads. I know where this philosophy ends up at. I know where this thought goes to, and it's not good. I know where that worldly agenda ends at. It is not good. 
And then the moment you tell people, don't bind to this, they'll call you names. You go like, wait a minute, no, that ideology doesn't work. I know where it goes to. I know where it leads to. I know where it ends at. And it's not a good place. So people go, well, you shouldn't be speaking about worldly ideologies inside of the church. No, you should. <laughs> there isn't anything that you do in your world that's not spiritual and that doesn't impact your life. Everything matters. Ideas matter. So here Jesus speaks to them. Revelation 2 verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Stars are who? The pastors. Who walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. Lampstands are what? Churches. It holds up the light of God's truth. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Good for you. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You're good. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Impressive. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have walked away from your first love. Remember, the, remember therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. The city of Ephesus was very famous for the temple where they, everybody, everybody came to worship a goddess by the name Diana. She had another name, Artemis. And so people from all over the Mediterranean, Mediterranean world would come over here to Ephesus regularly to worship Diana. And this is not John's message, so remember this. This is the message that Jesus Christ brings them. And He speaks to the stars. And He speaks to the lampstands. He speaks to the teachers, the preachers, the pastors, the shepherds. And He speaks to the members of the churches. And He warns them after He first affirms them. He says, This I hold against you that you have forsaken your first love. They were hardworking. But they no longer had the same love for Christ as they did when they first believed. So what's he doing? He's saying, okay, I see you doing this. But the reason why you did it in the first place, that reason, your love for me, is no longer there. You are now just still doing what you are doing. And it's good that you're doing it, but you're not doing it out of love for me. You see, the world thinks of it the other way around. Man, you're so good to me, I love you. You're so kind to me, I love you for it. Man, you're so helpful to me, I love you for it. Man, you're so generous toward me, I love you for it. I love you because of what you did. But not with God. God wants us to do because we love, not to love because somebody did something for us. No, we do what we do because we love Him, not because we love those we do it for. And this is so important to understand, especially every pastor. Every, t every team leader, every person in our teams who serve in any way, the reason why we love on people, we care for people, we shepherd people, we spend time with people, we share the truth of God to people, is because we love God. Whether they accept it or reject it is none of our business. Whether they, whether they respond, repent or not, it's none of our business. We serve God because we love Him. 
That's from the outflow of our love. But if we care for people because we love them, then the moment they stop loving us, we'll stop caring for them. The moment they hurt us, we wouldn't care for them ever again because it's contingent upon what they do for us, and that is not what God has called us to. I have to remain completely free from any of that, and I do. I love God. That's why I minister to God's people. Of course, there are frustrations. But at the end of the day, we have to repent from that frustration. And we say, God, I want to serve you. <laughs> I don't care. I'm generous. I don't care. I care for people. I, there's, there's, you know, it's not, it's not the people. It's you I love, God. So the bottom line was their work was no longer motivated by their love for Christ. Jesus says in verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. That's a long way to fall, to start doing what you do for reasons other than loving God. That's a long way to fall. And he says, repent. He goes, Jacques, um, what are you saying? I've fallen and you didn't? No, we all fall. The question is not, did we fall? The question is, did we repent every time we fall? That's a daily thing. Every time, if you're a team leader and you have a hard meeting, I can almost guarantee you that when you're done with that hard meeting and it didn't go the way you hoped it would, and that sheep just bit you while you try to catch him from falling, <laughs> throwing himself over the edge, <laughs> You have to probably repent again. Say, God, I just want to remind myself I'm doing this for you. That's why I can go back and get bit again. That's why we, you can live like that. And that's beautiful. That's a beautiful attitude. Because you know how many times you've bit him. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is your service to God driven by your love for God? Is my service driven by my love that I have for God. And that's a warning he gave to a church that was experiencing the world infiltrating it. And it's strange. You go like, wait a minute. Maybe we should have just preached the hard message. No. Jesus actually says that's what you have to do. The way you combat an in, a, a world infra, infiltrating the church is by saying, I've got to get my motive right first. I do this because I love God, not because I hate the world. I do this because I love God, not because people like me. I do this because I love God, not because of any other possible reason as to why you may do this. Revelation 2 verse 5b, Jesus says, But if you do not repent from this, having fallen from your first love, if you do not repent from this, from now doing things for other reasons, for being ambitious for other, ish, for other reasons, because you know what? People serve God for many reasons. They serve God because, you know, they don't want to be outcast. They serve God because they're broken wings and they need friends. They serve God because, you know, they want, they want promotion. They want prominence. They, they just want their guilt gone. They just want, you know, they serve God for many reasons. They're ambitious over many issues. But we have to learn to rid ourselves of worldly ambitions and say, I have one ambition. And that is one day to stand before Him and say, yeah, I've been faithful to Christ. We have to learn, to be honest, to live through this world, being completely content to be forgotten forever. 
faceless and nameless. Leaving no mark, it's okay. As a Christian, we don't live to leave a mark in this world. Oh, the world remembers Basui. No. No. We live not towards the end of this world. We live towards the beginning of the next where we can say we were faithful. We were faithful. The world rejected and hated you. Yeah, but I was faithful to Christ. Everybody's faithful. The question is, what are you faithful to? Everybody is faithful. Jesus actually addressed it in the very beginning. He says, unless you deny self, pick up your cross, the instrument of death. Follow me. Where to? To the Father. You call me my disciple. So the question we have to ask ourselves here is, is our service to God driven by our love for God or by our personal ambition? Number two, the second warning he gives is to the church at Smyrna. Let's read it. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things, they, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, that you may be tested, and you will have, a tri- you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until, the, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Jesus calls them to remain faithful in what? In their suffering. To who? The cross. Jesus calls them to remain faithful. During what time? During hard times. During persecution. When it's times when you feel like you're alone. There's nobody who actually sees what I see. There's nobody who believes as I believe. Everybody's angry for the position I take. Everybody wants me to stop talking about ideologies. And I go like, I know where they go. You feel lonely because nobody sees as you do. Dark times, hard times, difficult times, persecution. But you hold fast to your objective truth, not to anybody's subjective truth that they have orchestrated. So here in Revelation 2 verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. We see that echoed again in James chapter 1.12. He says, The person... Um, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Let me just quickly say this. If, you are, if you're experiencing absolute loneliness because even though you are with many people, but not, nobody believes as you believe, nobody sees as you do, nobody holds fast to objective truth as you do, everybody gives himself to subjective truth, their past experiences, other people's stories, how they feel about things, what the world says about things, they grab onto that truth, but you reject it and you grab onto a truth that comes to you from Scripture. This is how God sees things. This is how God defines justice. This is how God defines truth. If you grab onto that and you say, well, I'm feeling kind of lonely 
because I seem to be the only one who sees things this way. If that is you, then remember that God says here in James chapter 1 verse, two, verse 12, the person will, um, he says, having stood that test, blessed are the ones who persevere under trial because having stood that test. It is a test to you. Everyone must go through that time of loneliness, being the only one who sees the way you do, being the only one who believes what God has said, being the only one who's sober-minded on God's actual truth regarding a specific ideology. And when you see that and you go like, well, it's a test. Every one of us have to go through it. Because he says, having stood that test, the person will receive a crown of life and the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, I do not know where we are in history of humanity or the church, and I do not know how fast things will go, but I know that God graces the willing in every situation and in every single battle. Think about it. When it was time to stand in front of Pharaoh, the very Moses who said that he couldn't was able to. When it was time to actually pick up an axe and fight a battle, the very Gideon who believed that he was completely inadequate suddenly was able to. The very man, this great story, Martin Luther, when he first stood in front of the council, he, he basically asked him to give him another day because he needed to pray about his decision. That night he wrestled. The next day he refuted to recant. But he'd rather responded with this word, and I quote it. He says, as he stood facing his possible death, he said, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is kept to the word of God, the objective truth of God. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. And I really believe that if you and I had to imagine us standing in front of a very vile crowd like Stephen did, a violent crowd, cupping their ears and screaming so that they couldn't hear you speak the truth, ready to persecute you in the, mo in the greatest degree, I really believe that there's a moment there where God's grace comes upon you and the very Moses that didn't believe he couldn't do what he did, the very Gideon who didn't believe that he, did what he, that he couldn't do what he actually ended up doing, that very same grace of God comes upon you. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we desire to be found faithful to Christ in the end? Is that what you want? What is it that you want? Are you ambitious for this world? Do you want to leave your mark in this world? I've yet to go to a graduation ceremony where all the faculty didn't encourage these students who still need to learn how to make their bed to go out there and leave your mark in this world. <laughs> this is not where you want to leave your mark. You want to not have ambition for this world. You want to live towards the beginning of the next where you can stand and say, against all odds, I was faithful to the cross, not to my subjective truth. So boil down the second church's encouragement from Christ down to this question, do you desire to be found faithful to Christ in the end, yes or no? The third church is the church at Pergamos. Or Pergamos in Revelation 2, verse 12 through 17, it reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write this <clears throat> These things says he who has the sharp two edged sword. 
Jesus Christ himself says this to you and I. I know your works, that where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas my, was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you are there, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idol and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I'll come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the church says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I'll give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. See, the believers in Pergamos lived in a very difficult place, surrounded by pagan influences. Yet they held fast to Christ's name and did not deny Him during very difficult times. One Christian in that church, the church of Pergamos, his name was Antipas. Jesus calls him a faithful witness. Church history says that Antipas was a physician and he was suspected of uh, propagating Christianity. And he was uh, accused of that by their, by their then big pharma. It seems like he was in the uh, medical society. They were called Asculapians. Asculapians. Don't know if that's the right correct announce, uh, pronunciation, but Asculapians. And they accused Antipas of being disloyal to Caesar for preaching Christ secretly. And after Antipas was condemned to death, he was placed inside a copper bull, a massive copper bull, and uh, they made a fire underneath this copper bull and they boiled him to death. Revelation 2.13 says this, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Jesus repeats that, where Satan lives. You know he was angry. However, this church was not perfect. Jesus then has to go and correct them. Imagine this, okay? You stay faithful to the gospel in the face of somebody else in your church being burnt alive and you still remain faithful. And now Jesus corrects them. He says in Revelation 2 verse 14, this is so interesting. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. So we're going to define that doctrine in a second. And this doctrine caused them to eat things sacrificed to idols. This was spiritual compromise. Spiritual compromise. And then, secondly, to commit sexual immorality. Moral compromise. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Jesus hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which was doctrinal compromise. He says then, repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Balaam, a false teacher in this church, 
Pergamos. They allowed him to continue. Jesus judged him for it. Another doctrine that swirled through that church was the doctrine of immorality. They allowed it. Jesus judged them for it. The third doctrine was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus judged them for it. I want to show you a short video that shows how the church is being redressed, put together in such a way that the church may love, or that the world may love the church, and how God will respond to it. Thank you. Imagine there was a great king who loved his bride more than anything. And he's going to go on a long journey. And before he goes on that journey, he calls us, he calls, he calls you, he calls one man, and he says, you will be the steward, and you will take care of my bride. Now, she's most precious to me. Here are the decrees by which you will care for her. This is what you shall do and shall not do with her. You must fulfill everything. Your faithfulness will be rewarded. Your unfaithfulness, your unconcern for these decrees regarding my bride will be punished. And so the king goes on a long journey. And he's gone for a long time. And the steward begins to notice that the people are losing interest in the king. And they're losing interest in his bride, the queen, because she's somewhat pale and, and, and plain and, and old-fashioned for them. So he decides that in order to save the kingdom, he is going to remake the bride. And, and in doing that, he's going to change her simple but elegant uh, white robe into something uh, a bit more eye-catching and flashy. He's going to paint her face and change her hair and then parade her in front of carnal men in order to attract them somehow back into the kingdom. When that king returns, what is he going to do to that steward? I'm sure he'll take his life. He'll judge him most severely. He'll look at him and say, who do you think that you are? That you would do this to my bride, especially in light of the specific commands that I gave you. And we can see the same thing today. We see so many men that are trying to transform, redress, repackage the bride of Christ so that worldly men might somehow be attracted to the king. I think those men should be extremely afraid. When Elsa reaches out to touch the ark, I mean, his heart, so to speak, is in the right place. He loves the ark. He doesn't want the ark to touch the ground. And he reaches out and he touches it in a forbidden manner. And God essentially says to us, through killing Uzzah, this is not about what you want or what you feel. This is about what I say. And that matters. We oftentimes attempt to change what needs to be changed in order to be more loved by the world. And so we're redressing 
the body of Christ, the very bride of Christ, to look like we think she should look in order to be loved more by the world and parade this bride that belongs to our King before worldly men. It's a fearful thing, but that's what was happening right here. They allowed Balaam to just come in and preach as he wanted. They allowed Nicholas to just come in and preach as he wanted. And some people were accepting that teaching of Nicholas, and they were called the Nicolaitans. You can read more about them elsewhere. But Nicholas believed that He could downplay certain parts of the word and upplay other parts. You see, the question we have to ask ourselves when we see this happening in the church worldwide, we have to ask, do I feel safe compromising scriptures? Because that's what Nicholas allowed them to do. That's what Balaam allowed them to do. Do you feel comfortable or rather do you feel safe compromising scriptures? Nobody thinks it is right to compromise the Scripture. Nobody goes like, yeah, no, we can compromise that one. Check box. Yep, I'll put my name behind it. Let me sign somewhere. We can compromise this one. Nobody says it like that. But many feel it's, that they're safe by ignoring a certain portion of Scriptures. They're safe to just ignore it. Or they feel safe to twist it a little bit. I know it's not completely contextual, but I'll just kind of use it over here because it makes sense and it validates what I want to believe. Or what they do is they just downplay something. Like, yeah, we know that's sin, but you know what? Hey, we're just human, you know. We're just so, it's just 2020. I mean, I don't know what to say. You know, so the church started responding that way, which is the way Nicholas responded. And he came up with a doctrine that caused them to compromise spiritually. And the church was okay with it. The church didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to name names. They didn't want to talk about anybody. They didn't want to, they didn't want to say, hey, listen, this is a false teaching, or that's not, this is not scriptural. Because there were relations involved, relationships involved, and, and, and some people were going to be, they're going to have their feathers ruffled. And so they just left it. But we see Jesus said here in verse 16, repent, or else I will come to you quickly. Repent, or I'm coming quickly. I don't know if you are a parent, and if you are, you probably have said that before. Um, if you don't do this right now, I'm going to be on this like white on rice. I'm coming quickly. <laughs> you know, if you don't make that bed now, you've got 10 seconds, buddy. You know, like you come to a point where you say that. And Jesus actually says this. He says, repent or I will come to you quickly. This has to stop now. The second question you can ask yourself is, do I feel safe? trivializing God's moral standards. So do I feel safe trivializing God's scripture or compromising a scripture? Do I feel safe trivializing his moral standards? Again, nobody thinks it's right to do, sex, to do something that's sexually immoral, right? Nobody says, yeah, no, that's right, that's right. You can do that. But many feel safe with their immoral, immorality. It's not that they agree with it. It's just they, they have a safety about it. How do I know they feel safe? Because they're not changing it. That's why. It's okay. Why do they do it today? Because of the same reason they did it back then. 
What is the reason? It's because of this doctrine that we preach or we've allowed to be preached in the church. It's called the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus said he hates. Nicholas taught forgiveness without repentance, period. That's what he taught. You can be forgiven even if you do not repent for the very thing you say you are forgiven for. Hear me again. Nicholas taught that you can be forgiven for unrepented sins. How do they get there? They taught that the Spirit is perfect, made perfect in Christ. The body is going to die, and it is sinful. They believed that the body was sinful anyway. No matter what, God was going to save their spirit instead. He died and He perfected the spirit, therefore the spirit was saved, even though the body can freely continue in the sin. <clears throat> that teaching is still really alive today, very well, very alive today. They don't teach, repent to God, repentance toward God, and faith in Christ Jesus. They just repent faith in Christ, they just teach faith in Christ Jesus. That's all you need. And they go like, yeah, well, the reason why they teach that is because repentance is a work, right? Well, no, not so. <laughs> repentance is not a work. And uh, we discussed that in the beginning of our Wednesday night midweek Bible studies, showing how, for by grace through faith, you've been saved. Grace, faith, salvation, it says, and this too is a gift of God. Faith. Salvation and the grace that made it possible, all of it is God's gift to you. It's not that you worked for it. But the other thing that's a gift is what we see when the apostles were teaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, and there were all these Gentiles repenting. And the apostles went, look at that. Gentiles are repenting. That means God is making the gospel available to the Gentiles because how could they repent if God didn't Offer them, they said, repentance. God gave the Gentiles repentance. Like God gives you and I repentance, the ability to turn. Actually, the Bible's very clear about it. It says, it, it calls repentance a gift over and over again. It's the gift of repentance. And there's a man in the Bible that did not receive the gift. Esau. Very clearly it says, and Esau sought the place of repentance with tears. He cried. He wanted to repent. He couldn't. It wasn't offered him. So, if you have the opportunity to repent, that is God's gift to you. Dave, could we make it a little colder in here? One degree? If you have the opportunity to repent, you should repent because it's a gift from God. And so here he says to us, when you see Nicholas's message being taught in the church, repent. Repent. Why would we teach that there's forgiveness outside of repentance? Maybe we can also start teaching salvation outside of Christ. We might as well go all the way, shouldn't we? And then we get to what's called universalism. That's where Nicholas was on his way to. So they believed the body was sinful anyway, but the spirit was made perfect. Therefore, sin didn't matter anymore. Jesus said, I hate that. So the question you ask yourself today, when you see the world infiltrating the church, ask yourself the question, do I feel safe compromising Scripture? Is it a safe thing for me? 
I know I'm compromising it, and I'm not shuddering. I'm not trembling in my shoes when I see that happening in me and around me in the church. The second question you have to ask yourself is, do I feel safe trivializing God's moral standards? All right, the fourth church, the final church, is the church at Thyatira. In Revelation 2, verse 18, it says, And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write this, These things says the, God of, says the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire, and his feet like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last, the last are more than the first. In other words, their works have only become better and better and better. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idol. Let me just quickly pause there. Was there actually a woman called Jezebel? who were teaching people to commit adultery in the church, encouraging one guy to sleep with another man's wife. That was not what's happening. Jezebel was a personality in a distant past event, which Jesus refers to because it's the same spirit. The spirit that's being taught not to commit necessarily physical adultery, but to commit adultery with the world, where what they did was the church needed to now be reformed, really deformed, so that the world can start loving her because she wants to be loved by another instead of Christ. And so here she is. She's teaching this, this watered-down gospel. She's redressing the church. They're allowing her to do so. Verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. This is Jesus. He says, I'm going to take her. I'm going to throw her into a sickbed. I'm going to make her sick. Oh, Jesus doesn't make it. No. Sit here. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give the power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Jesus affirms the church's positive actions, and then he warns them about the heresy in the church, about downplaying their commitment to the cross, uh, being okay with people who drift. I love it when people just, when I say I love it, I'm being sarcastic. I love it when people just kind of like go, eh, you know, he's preaching what he's preaching because he doesn't want me to leave the church. You couldn't be more wrong. 
Oh, he, he just, uh, you know, he's just making sure. He's just making sure, you know, I keep giving. You couldn't be more wrong. I can tell you now when I read what I'm teaching on today, I think more than anybody else, I tremble in my boots over this. To my core, only because I know I'm the shepherd. You can interpret my words any way you want. And that's, that's what you have to sign up for when you become a leader, right? It's the willingness to be misinterpreted. The willingness to be misunderstood. Do I want you to go to church? Yes. Why? Just to go to church? No. You're going to have to serve God. And you are going to have to serve God according to a pure, objective gospel. Not a social one. Not one that follows and dresses up to be loved by the world. Not one that's so trivialized and makes you so safe to live in sin and to live for the world and to be redressed as really the whore that sits on the hills that commits adultery with the world constantly, which is the bride of Christ, not committed to Him, but loving by the world. You know, why is it that I'm saying that you could not be more wrong by saying, like, you just want to, you know, I just want to make sure you don't leave the church. No, 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 no. you got to serve God. Wherever you have to go to serve God, go there and serve Him if you can't do it here. But, but the point is just, one day, those who keep on stripping themselves of worldly ambitions, which I hope to do all the time, so I do so so that even if you end up being faceless and nameless and you have... You have a, a stone on your grave that says, gone home with no name on it, which I want no flowers, keep the money. And I don't want my name on a tombstone. I don't want to be remembered. I don't want to leave my mark. I want one thing. I want to get to heaven one day, stand before Christ and be, be told, you were faithful to the cross. Against all odds, it was stacked up against you, back against the wall, in a corner, alone. Nobody else viewed it as you did. Nobody else saw what you did. Nobody else believed like you did in this world. You went through that test. I want to tell you that you were faithful. There should be no other ambition in our hearts than for that moment. But the ambition for that moment has to constantly be compared to ambitions for other things in our lives. But when you find somebody who has no ambition for this world, you have found the most freest person you will ever meet. The person who has one ambition, and it's for the world hereafter, is the freest person, which is a freedom I work towards all the time where I can tell a person, sweetheart, you can do whatever you want, but I cannot pretend like this is a game. This is a non-for-profit. This is not a non-for-profit um, charity. This is not what it is. This is not a non-for-profit little church that fights against people getting the flu. This is not our goal and our purpose. Our goal is not that. Our goal is, is eternally essential to the point where 
if you don't have somebody standing in front of you that is serious about a pure gospel, undefiled by the world in any way, then find somebody like that. That's probably the safest person you'll find. We were going on a missions trip many years ago. I said to a guy on the phone, he's a pastor, and he wanted to come with us on a missions trip, and he said, hey, so I'm interested. What are you guys going to do when you get there? I said, well, as a group, we're going to go through this curriculum. He says, who wrote the curriculum? And I gave the pastor's name who wrote the curriculum. He goes, oh, my gosh, I hate that guy. I'm like, why? <laughs> I disagree with him. I said, but so do I. But I don't hate him. I love what he says in this curriculum. I hardly have any disagreements with this guy, but he is very divisive, just so you know. So he shall remain nameless. And you will wonder all the time throughout this whole story, who is he, who is he, who is he? I'm not telling you, okay? <laughs> His name begins with, nah. I said to the guy, no, we're going to go through this. He said, nah, then I'm not coming. I'm like, all right, you know, don't come. It's okay. <laughs> Let the little kids go hungry. <laughs> so he, he chose not to come because he wasn't happy with, the pastor who wrote the curriculum that we were going to go through on this mission trip. And I said to him, you know, by the way, I just want to talk to you about this. I said, that is the most objective. That man embraces the most objective truth possible. He actually does not impose upon scriptures anything he believes. He refuses to believe anything that the scripture doesn't. He cannot exegete from a verse. Okay, so, yeah, he's divisive. It's kind of awkward sometimes being around him. But let me tell you. Being around Jesus must be awkward today too because he's the one who said, I'm the way, the only way. He, he's somewhat of a, you know, today's terms, they would call him a bigot. I mean, imagine the Apostle Paul. I will not let a woman speak. Like, how, that's so chauvinistic, my gosh. How about God the Father taking the Israelites, throwing them into slavery for hundreds of years? What is that? And so, today it's awkward to relate to certain people as a Christian. But you don't realize as a Christian, it's really, really awkward relating to Jesus in reality. The Jesus of the Bible. So I said to this guy, I said, by the way, just so you know, don't you sometimes feel lonely when you feel like you're the absolute only person that sees things the way the Bible says they are? Everybody else wants to submit themselves to subjective truths. And you go like, but that's what it says. And you hunger for an objective truth from scriptures. And doesn't it make you feel lonely? He goes, yeah, I know. I know that feeling. And I know you guys know that feeling too. You walk through the mall and you go like, man, I, I don't know why I'm so burdened. I feel so alone. All these people around me. But there's no one that sees as I do. He says, man, I know that feeling. And I said, the day will come. The day will come when you live in a world where you will have one friend. It'll be this guy you say you hate. It'll be that guy. You will have nobody else to hook your little wagon to. You'll have nobody else you can say, thank you for that. Sober-minded perspective of objective truth. He goes, yeah, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you're saying, but anyway, nice talking. <laughs> that was about it. I'm telling you, we've arrived at those days where some of the people that are the least liked by the world are the only people you're going to feel safe with.
because they are not ambitious for this world. They have one ambition, and that is to remain faithful to Christ. So the question here is, are we tolerant towards false teaching in the church that leads to sin and compromise? Are we tolerant towards Jezebel? Are we tolerant towards those who allow the church to be redressed, dressed up in such a way that she can be paraded in front of an unregenerated world? Are we okay with that? When the church becomes more of a circus than the foundation and pillar of truth instead, are we okay with that? Do we play around with that? Or do we go, you know what, I'm, I'm no longer reading this stuff. This guy's, I'm, not, I'm no longer, I'm tuning out from that. I'm, I'm throwing all those CDs away. I've had book-burning ceremonies myself, and we just throw stuff away. I just throw it all away. Because at the end of the day, unless, unless you land with what is an absolutely objective truth, you're in grave danger. And this is what Jesus was telling the church. He was saying whether it be Balaam, Balak, whether it be Jezebel, Nicholas, all these Nicolaitans, all these things I hate. I have this against you. And and if you do not repent, I will come to you quickly. Stop it. So as we close, may we as a church one day hear the words, well done, good and faithful servants. This is our life work. This is our life goal. This is our vision. This is our hope. This is our ambition to hear those words. When Jesus addressed the persecuted church, He called them to be victorious. He says, and those who are overcomers. He was not talking about those who overcome circumstances. Yeah, well, my business was failing, but bless God, because of the grace of God, I've overcome. That is not the overcoming He's talking about. He's talking about those who overcame the pressure to not remain committed to their bridegroom, Christ. Those who refused to try and look beautiful to the world. Those who refused to try and be attractive to another other than Christ. Those who refused to start feeling more comfortable with a subjective truth rather than an objective truth, as objective truth. Those who were faithful to the cross and refused for the for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be contaminated by worldly and cultural ideologies. That's why the Bible says, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can be victorious, even if the world tells you you're not compassionate, because they're going to do everything they can to make your gospel look like it's not loving, caring, or compassionate. You see, living victoriously in times of chaos like we do today means we love the world less, not more. And for whatever reason, you can go and search it out yourself already, but the church at large, from the biggest part of the church today, that we follow, for the most part, are hooking their little wagon on behind some social train. And the church was never to be led by worldly compassions, by worldly perspectives, by worldly values. That is not what the church is to do. Living victoriously in times of chaos means we are less worldly, not more. Worldly does not mean you go to the... Less, being less worldly does not mean you go to the club less. That's not what it means. 
It means you don't buy into worldly perspectives. We are more committed to the cross, not less. We are greater. We have a greater love for God, not less. So, here's the conclusion. The church at Ephesus, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is your service to God driven by your love for God? Is that why you're serving God? Because you love Him? Or is it because you need friends? The church at Smyrna, the question we have to ask ourselves, do you desire to be found faithful to Christ in the end? In the end, what's your ambition? What, what are your ambitions right now? Your greatest should be that you want to be faithful to Christ in the end. Church at Pergamos, the question was, do you feel safe in compromising and trivializing scriptures? Is it safe for you to do so? It doesn't keep you up at night. You don't shake and shudder in fear when you know you're not living according to the standards of scriptures. Finally, the church at Thyatira are we tolerant towards false teaching in the church? Are we tolerant towards a tainted gospel? Are we tolerant towards the church's message uh, following the cultural perspectives and following a worldly view? Are we okay with that? If so, the question is not are you guilty of it because we all are. The question is, will we repent from it? Because we all should. I, I, I look at this, and to be honest with you, maybe this is just for me. But I tremble when I look at this. Because the buddy guy, Jesus, is not the Jesus we will meet one day when we meet him face to face. And we happen to live at this time in history where the church is going to have to take a stand one way or another. And we cannot pretend that we are not trivializing Christ, yet we do ignore much of what He said and warned us against. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads.